This episode is brought to you by Audible.com. The leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment. That would be the Audible.com I was talking about. Audible has over 100,000 audiobooks available for you, and they want to give you one for free. A hundred thousand? Ken, how is anybody supposed to choose? Ah, John, it's a good thing I'm here. If there's one thing I know, it's that people can't get enough of Khan. Few warlords elicit the sounds of glee one hears when one hears the name Khan Noonien Singh. And now you can trace Khan's rise to power in Star Trek, The Eugenics Wars, The Rise and Fall of Khan Noonien Singh. Oh, spoiler alert, he also falls. That's a two-part story. But you can get one of those parts for free by giving Audible a try at audiblepodcast.com slash missionlog. If, on the other hand, you want a whole book or a non-Star Trek book for whatever reason, dive into those 100,000 other titles we mentioned earlier. History, mystery, fantasy, science fiction, classics of yesteryear, or bestsellers of today. Download your title, load it onto your computer, smartphone, or MP3 player, and take it with you whenever and wherever you go. We really do appreciate their support, and we hope you'll give Audible a try. Get your free book today audiblepodcast.com slash mission log. Now entering Nerdist.com. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast, episode 46. A piece of the action. Welcome into Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm Ken Ray, but you can call me Boss. And I'm John Champion, and you can call me Boss. Hey, hey, hey. It's going to be a turf war. That may be after the show. Each week, we examine an episode of Star Trek. You know, we're looking hard for the morals, messages, and meanings buried within. This week, we're going to put a bag on you. We're putting you on ice. I'm taking this bum Tracy out of the headlines. I'm rubbing him out. Oh, I think I, I may have gotten another show in there. Sorry about that. Anyway, this week, we're giving you a piece of the action. Ken, I don't think we would make very good gangsters. I would, I would make a lousy gangster. I would make a great, I, I would make a great Dick Tracy villain, which, which I think means that I would be perfectly at home. Uh, in a piece of the action this week's uh, this week's episode that we're covering on the mission log. True that, where uh, Kirk and Spock and McCoy find themselves on a planet full of 1920s gangsters. Yes. 1920s Chicago gangsters, no less. Yeah, yeah, good yeah. point that. How did they end up on another part of the galaxy? We'll get to that. But first, we'll do a little bit of trivia, and I am excited, John, this week. We got a new sponsor for trivia. Oh, I'm so glad. I know. Today's trivia with John Champion brought to you by Bang Bang, the makers of the sweetest little automatic in the world. John? <laughs> that thrills me to no end. <laughs> um, yes, so the trivia for this week. So it, it is well known that on the very first series proposal, as uh, Gene Roddenberry was writing down the uh, the potential topics and potential storylines for the show, and these are all just like little one-sentence or, or blurbs. Uh, they were kind of at the back of the book. He actually wrote the term President Capone. So that may have been an early idea for what turned into this episode. Now, a piece of the action uh, was developed when uh, 
it was kind of a response to the increased comedy of the show. So Trouble the Tribbles had not aired yet, uh, but it was shot about seven episodes earlier than a piece of the action. And it's kind of well known that Gene L. Kuhn made the decision to push the comedy a little harder in Star Trek. And thus we get episodes like a piece of the action. Now, um, of course, there's the the well-known, very funny scene in which Captain Kirk tries to confuse his captors with the card game Fizben. Uh, and even after the number of times that I've watched it, I'm still confused on the rules. Uh, but it may entertain you, Ken, to know that there are actually rules written up to the game, the full game, if you wanted to play it. And at conventions, there have been card sets produced uh, by which you could play Fizben. And um, it, now the, the source of all knowledge on the Internet, if you look up Fizbin on uh, Urban Dictionary, yeah. it actually says that this is sort of like a secret handshake word that techies use. So, like, uh, Ken, if you were to call, say, AppleCare, if you needed support on your computer, rather than letting the guy on the other end of the line go through the whole long thing of like, well, I want you to turn the computer on, I want you to – you would just say Fizbin. And that would be the secret handshake so he knows that you know what you're doing. You've, and then you just cut through all the other stuff and just go right to the tech speak. You've got to be kidding me. I, that, that's what it says. I'm going to try it out. I'm going to try it out next time I try to call for computer support. Well, the problem is you just ruined it. <laughs> I ruined it for everybody? Well, well, now, now every- well, now everybody's just going to try that. And then they'll say, okay, so then you've obviously gone ahead into the prompt command and Mm-hmm. You know, you're going to have people going, wait, okay, I'm sorry. I was kidding about the Fizzman thing. It's, and, and, and they're never going to use Fizzman again. I know. A- after that, yeah. It's really interesting to me, actually, that you say that there are cards out there for it, because I found myself, and it's obvious that Kirk is just sitting there making the whole thing up, but I found myself wanting to play a game like that. Like, I would like to have a game <laughs> that, you know, what, depending on the time of day you play it and right. what season of the year it is and what day of the week it is, I mean, the rules are different. We still know that we're playing... I don't like the name Fizbin. I would want to change it. Plus, that might actually confuse any tech support people who happen to be wondering. Who would be playing the game with you. Yeah, yeah. They would think, yeah. oh, yeah. he needs help, but but <laughs> I can go ahead and jump to the part where I can actually help him. And yeah. I don't really need help. I just need a, well, let's see. It's a little bit after dark now, so I guess I need a fourth jack. <laughs> don't be such a shrunk. <laughs> Um, (laughs) uh, there's a really cool thing about this episode. So, uh, you know, we, we don't go into books, comics, all the other stuff out there, but there's an interesting tie in here. Uh, when on uh, deep space nine, they were developing the storyline that then became, uh, more troubles, more tribbles, uh, the and they kind of did the crossover between the DS nine crew and, um, and the original series crew. Mm -hmm. One of the original ideas was actually not to do the uh, Tribbles episode. It was to do a return to uh, the planet where a piece of the action takes place. I'm going to go back to Sigma Iosha 2 and uh, and follow up on that story. Well, that storyline didn't happen, obviously, so we got the Tribbles story instead. But Marvel Comics, they did a series called Marvel uh, Star Trek Unlimited, they did a comic called A Piece of the Reaction in which the TNG era Enterprise crew goes back to that planet. And guess what they find? They um, find that because of the communicator left behind, nice. now that whole planet is sort of emulating 23rd century Starfleet. That's kind of cool. And 
Yeah, and there is an interesting commentary there about Star Trek fans <laughs> taking on the the imagery and the ideals of Starfleet and making it their own. And all of that from the communicator? All of that from the communicator <sighs> and, and the experience with Kirk and Spock and McCoy. Yeah, you know? okay. there is that too. And, so, and the four people that... Uh, that Vic Tabak saw on the uh, on the Enterprise. Speaking right. of which, I, I see here in your notes that you don't have that. Um, it is really neat to to see a Star Trek. I don't want to say villain, but mm-hmm. a Star Trek heavy to whom I immediately want to yell, "Kiss my grits!" Well, <laughs> of course, Vic Tabak, famous for playing Mel on Alice. Yep. I, it, yeah, I, I didn't put that in there, but I, I I knew we would have to hit it at some point. If we didn't, I was just going to refer to him as Mel throughout the story. <laughs> Mel is actually that's a great, that's a great. And then he would say to you, well, from the grave, sadly, but he'd say, "Stow it, champion." <laughs> right. Oh, by the way, I, I misspoke, and I apologize. I want to correct myself. The, the the DS9 title is actually Trials and Tribulations. More Troubles, More Tribbles was something else that we will get to later. More Troubles. Um, I actually know that one. I know that one. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Okay. It's good. in the animated series. You're exactly right. There you uh, go. Written by our good friend David Gerald. Um, another thing that we want to mention, uh, the discovered document uh, for this episode Um we actually have the shooting schedule, the six-day shooting schedule of this episode. And uh, it's just kind of interesting to see the breakdown of how they shot it. So all the Enterprise interiors were done on the very last day. And we're talking about everything that takes place on the Enterprise. So the scenes with Kirk and Spock and McCoy, but also the scenes where they have already been on the planet and you just are dealing with Scotty and Uhura. Uh, And then those scenes were shot early in the day because, of course, as you go along in the production schedule, you have to allow time for overages so that the actors would then come in later. So if Shatner and Nimoy were working late on day five, they would come in late on day six to shoot their scenes on the bridge. Um, The planet interiors were all done at Desilu, uh, right on the Star Trek stages uh, that they had. And then right next door at Paramount were all these street exteriors, uh, specifically used McFadden Street and Boston Street. Um, And one other cool little piece of trivia, there's an Enterprise episode called Horizon that takes place on the horizon. And yes, the book, Chicago Mobs of the 20s, can be seen in one of the shots. Once again, the Enterprise takes us hundreds of years into the future, to a place that seems to be decades and decades in our past, set the way back machine for a bright shining tomorrow. Prologue. About a hundred years ago, a ship called the Horizon had visited the planet Sigma Iosha 2 and was lost soon after her departure. Now, the Enterprise has come back for a visit, and Kirk radios the planet's boss... Mr. Bella Oxmix, to say that a landing party will be beaming down. Bella's a little confused, but he says someone will be on hand to meet them. Kirk, Spock, and McCoy sure are confused when they arrive to find that everything looks like Earth in the 1920s, and they are greeted by a couple of thugs holding Tommy guns. Act 1. The thugs confiscate Kirk's phaser, and they're on their way to see Oxmix, but not before a drive-by hit interrupts things. Seems to be all a part of the way things work here on Sigma Iosha 2 anyway. In fact, every person we can see is carrying a gun. I mean, packing heat. This is not the way the Horizon reported things on this planet. 
Time to meet the boss, Bella Oxmix. He's in charge of the biggest territory on the planet, and there seems to be a perpetual state of gangland warfare to expand territories. Kind of like when Krakow's thugs just tried to hit Bella's men escorting the Enterprise crew. In Bella's office, Spock makes a discovery. A book called Chicago Mobs of the 20s, published in 1992. Bella says it's the book, the book, the one left behind by the horizon. Spock sees it as the source of contamination in the days before there was a prime directive. You remember that thing that Kirk ignores all the time? The Iotians are smart, but they are also highly imitative. They took it, and they ran with it. Oxmix wants a deal. The Enterprise provides him with weapons so he can take over. If they don't do it, the landing party will be killed. Act 2. Kirk, Spock, and McCoy are being held hostage in a warehouse, and Oxmix has all their equipment. Kirk distracts the guards with an impossible card game, Fizbin, long enough to knock them out and take their weapons. They split up, but Kirk is almost immediately captured by one of the thugs working for rival gang boss Jojo Krakow. Spock and McCoy fare a little better, though. They make it to a radio station where they can call the Enterprise and get beamed up. Inside Krakow's HQ, Kirk tries to use reason. Let's all sit down and talk this over. It'll be better for the planet if there's unity and an end to the violence. The thought doesn't go over too well. Krakow just wants weapons, but he offers to cut Kirk in on the deal. Kirk declines and ends up kidnapped again. On board the Enterprise, Spock takes a radio call from Oxmix, who is a little surprised to find him there, but nonetheless lets him know that Kirk has been captured. Spock agrees to negotiate if it will help bring back Kirk. Kirk, meanwhile, is doing his own thing, setting up a tripwire in the room where he's being held. He makes a hasty exit with a Tommy gun, and at that same moment, Spock and McCoy beam down into Bella's office, only to be greeted at the point of more guns, of course. Act 3. Oxmix takes their weapons and has the advantage over Spock and McCoy. Really, they were that easy to dupe? At just the right moment, Kirk pushes his way through with a gun. Time to change tactics. Kirk and Spock take the very snazzy clothes of Bella's thugs, steal a car, and head off to find Krakow. After using one of the locals, a 12-year-old kid, as a diversion, Kirk and Spock make their way into Krakow's building, only to find themselves in the sights of more guns. Act 4. Right away, Krakow is checking out these fancy heaters, uh, phasers, and wants Kirk to bring him more. Kirk talks him into a private conversation, and at this point, he starts laying it on thick, putting the Federation in terms Krakow will understand. Oh, and he also very slyly gets his phasers back. Kirk tells Krakow that the Federation is taking over. They'll put in a boss, and then they'll pull the strings. Krakow relents if it means he'll still have a position. Kirk radios Scotty and has him beam up Krakow to the Enterprise. They knock out Krakow's henchmen and now hightail it back to see Bella Oxmix. When the henchmen come to, they start to plan a hit on Oxmix. Kirk and Spock show up and give the same deal, the bluff about the Federation taking over, but they have Oxmix start calling the other bosses. Scotty then starts beaming each boss who's on the phone directly into Bella's office, including Krakow, who's back from his trip to the transporter room. It's total chaos. Kirk is trying to get the upper hand, but the bosses aren't buying it. Krakow's men show up and start shooting. Kirk calls Scotty and has the Enterprise blast the whole block with phasers set to stun. The bosses all back down now that they've seen the power the Federation brings. 
they all assume Kirk will be the boss now, but Kirk says he can't get involved in a small operation like theirs. Kirk nominates Oxmix to be the main boss with Krakow as his lieutenant. They agree to cut the Federation in for 40%, whatever that may mean. Back on the Enterprise, Spock is a little perplexed at what the Federation will actually do every year when a ship has to go back to collect its share. Kirk says all he wants is for that share to go into a planetary fund for education. McCoy has worse news. He left his communicator behind. The Iotians are very clever and highly adaptable. They'll copy its technology the same way they copied the gangster book. In a few years, Kirk says the Iotians may turn things around and demand a piece of our action. The end. Now, I assume as soon as you said the end, you stopped moving. Yeah. <laughs> yes. It, just like the show, I, <laughs> I ended my read through in a freeze frame. Good. I think you should. I think that's important. And and honestly, um, <laughs> it really saved a bit of embarrassment because uh, the ending joke really wasn't that funny. I don't mean yours. No. I don't mean no, yours. Right. Well, I mean, yeah. when, when, when Kirk says, they might want a piece of our action. It's good Boom. that they did a freeze frame because otherwise you'd have to have Bones going, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. It's the only time in Star Trek that we end on a freeze frame. Yeah, and, and it's, um, very, it, it's very short. Yeah, yeah. It was a quick it, cut. If it were only like real life and you tell a joke that doesn't go over well and you can just freeze frame and have credits appear right on top of you. Yeah, wouldn't that be nice? That would be great. That'd be, I, we might be wishing for more of those later this episode. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, hey, Spock knows about a clutch. Yeah, I know, right? Yeah. Kind of uh, crazy. That's a little weird. Yeah. I, see, here's the thing. Like, I, I liked all that writing. I, I, I liked their back and forth because they, they really are in their stride with the Kirk-Spock dynamic. Um, but it, it just seemed to be another one of those unfortunate tropes. Okay, Spock knows everything. He can just sort of pull knowledge out of anywhere. A, a clutch? Really? They, they had 1931 Cadillac V12s on Vulcan that you just hop into and – Learn how to drive a stick shift. <laughs> I know we're know? not supposed to cross the timelines and all that stuff. And maybe it's because in the original series, Kirk didn't grow up with his uncle. He grew up with his mother and father. But, I knew. But, I, I was thinking the same thing. Yeah, <laughs> I'm thinking about like him, like, you know, taking that Corvette, you know, over the side of whatever canyon that was, Bryce Canyon, the Grand Canyon, some horrible landfill canyon. But, I mean, he's right. he's he's shifting gears and blowing the top off the thing. And then he gets in this 1920s, whatever, and he's like, oh, it's uh, uh, hmm. I mean, Kirk knew that there was a starter separate yes. from the key, right? But he didn't know about the clutch, right? And I'm thinking, hey, get that, get that little like 11 year old Kirk. Yeah, he'll right. he'll have this thing flying. Just you know, you won't even need guns to kill people on the road. No, well, so. Nero changed everything, but that was neither here nor there. <laughs> <laughs> right? Oh, Nero changes everything. Yeah, like he does. I, I, I like though when Spock finally gets to have some fun. And because they have a great exchange where Kirk's doing the check, right, you know, but finally Spock clues in and it's a nice bit where he, he, he does the line, I would advise you is to keep dialing Oxmix. Yeah. Because we haven't seen the enforcer Spock in a long time. And I think he's really kind of embraced it again. He's standing there with a gun and he gets to play gangster. Yeah, But what really sells that line, as you said, is the use. Yeah. I would, it's advise, the use. I would advise use to keep dialing Oxmix. <laughs> That's kind of awesome. Yeah, a piece of the action reminds me of every bad comedian in the late 80s. And I'm not saying whether this is a bad episode. I'm saying it reminds me of every bad comedian in the late 80s and early 90s. 
Uh, remember how everyone used to do Jack Nicholson as something? Oh, you know, like imagine yes. Jack Nicholson as a first grade teacher. I think it would go a little something like this. Or imagine Jack Nicholson <laughs> as a traffic cop. I think it would be a little something like this. Imagine Jack Nicholson as the captain of the Enterprise. Right. I think it might go a little something <laughs> like this. Okay. Yeah. So Star Trek gets like that, right? Yeah. Imagine Kirk and Spock in Prohibition times. Oh, mm-hmm. Imagine the crew of the Enterprise in an episode of Scooby-Doo. Okay. Oh, oh, wait, we did that one. We did that one, yeah. exactly. <laughs> I mean, it, we're sort of starting to get that way. I know there are others that are going to be kind of, ooh, what if it was like, what if it was like, what if it was like Kirk and Spock in Roman times? You know I mean? Ooh, and we're, we're, we're sort of doing that, which, which is cool. I mean, we've gone, we've talked repeatedly about how this is an anthology show, so that is kind of a fun thing to do. Right. I mean, how many godlike races are you going to come across every now and then? It's neat to see them, you know, bumble around with something that like, and it's almost like, it's almost like an accessibility thing again for the audience, right? They got transporters, they got warp drive, they got alien races. Oh, look at smart guy. He doesn't know about the clutch. Yeah. You know, I mean, there's, there's actually, there's actually something kind of fun about seeing, you know, somebody who's 300 years advanced and not be able to do something that most of the people sitting there watching it could do. Yeah. Well, it, it's, you know, like you just said, and we've said before on the show, how the original series was treated like an anthology where you, you could just pull out an episode, plug it in anywhere because you're hoping for reruns. And, and and it's not like today where you've got shows like Lost, where you have to watch it in order. You know, the new Battlestar Galactica, you had to watch that in order. Yeah. And there are these long character arcs. TV this is simply not done like that at the time. But one of the things that I think that's cool here, and, and I've always said to people who um, maybe are not clued into uh, Doctor Who, and I mean the, the new word Doctor Who, um, it, it's one of those shows where you do have some character arcs, you do have some payoff if you follow the show, but the format is so flexible, you can really do just about anything with it you want. You can do the comedy episode, you can do the horror episode, um, you can do the hard sci-fi episode, you can do romance, you can do all these different things, and they all kind of fit because you have such a big universe to play with. And, you know, again, we're still talking about relatively early Star Trek. They have hit a stride here, and boy, they they really just had magnificent episodes as you uh, approach the end of season one. There are just so many strong episodes there. Um, but now it's kind of like they get to to flex their creativity even more with the characters because the characters are established. And now they get to step outside of themselves a little bit. Now, I, I do have to, I have to say I love the fact that they give us a reason for an Earth-like planet here. I mean, we yes. remember the, the absolute uh, the, the torture that was <laughs> uh, Miri because right. it's just like, hey, look, another Earth. Well, how do you think right. that happened? Well, d- d- don't worry about how we think that happened. Just get to the other parts. Right. So, I mean, right. to, to say, OK, we're going to put them in 1920s, you know, and, and to say, well, how do we do that? Oh, well, here, here, here's how we do that. OK, now yeah. I'm with you. Let's then by all means, let's let's fire up those heaters. I wonder what would have happened if they left other books behind. <laughs> the you know, Wizard of I, Oz. The Wizard of Oz. I would so love I, it. I was thinking of H.G. Wells' The Shape of Things to Come. Yeah? Oh, well, that's yeah, okay. Sure, if mainly, you want to be all Mainly like... because I love Art Deco. And, and, and if they had done anything that looked like the movie of Things to Come, then, you know, that would have been a cool place to hang out for a while. I'm sorry, Art who? All right, use. Listen up. 
the boss and the boss are gonna start analyzing this week's tales from Planet Gangland. When I watched this episode, I, I took really just like three big notes, and, and those were the things that I, I thought would kick off our uh, our discussion. You know, the first thing that I thought was kind of strange is, hey, aren't gangsters fun? <laughs> <laughs> you know, because you're in this period here, the mid-60s, and you're doing popular entertainment. You're, you're doing television for a mass audience. And I think about how, as a pop culture phenomenon, gangsters go from terrifying to cuddly and back to terrifying. Yeah. You know, I, I think in the 20s, sure, there was some kind of weird misplaced hero worship with uh, with the antiheroes of people like Capone and John Dillinger and stuff like this. But these were dangerous people. And if you dealt with them, you ran a very high risk of getting killed. Um and then this sort of like popular entertainment version of gangsters came to be. And then you get into, I think, the kind of the renaissance of filmmaking in the 70s and going into the 80s and 90s where you have serious looks again at gangsters. And and even a movie that is kind of very pulpy like um, like The Untouchables and and as much of the, the clean-cut hero as Kevin Costner is as Elliot Ness – the version of Al Capone in that, that Robert De Niro plays, there is no question that he is a bad, dangerous person. <laughs> and, and the way the violence plays out in that, it, it, because it's a Brian De Palma film, you know, it, it, there's just no question about it. So it's kind of strange to go back and watch this thing where, where like, the gangsters are cuddly, <laughs> you know? They're, they're just sort of bumbling and fun, and, and we're just there to kind of shake things up. Yeah. So that, you know, that, that well, was the first thing that was strange. It's not like you won't still see that happen. I mean, you can say the same thing sort of about Westerns as well, right? I mean, Westerns, oh, sure, yeah. Westerns were cuddly for a long time, but you will have movies like, I mean, again, you've got very uh, clean cut characters in Tombstone, but there's there's something real going on in the movie Tombstone. Yeah. Um, uh, certainly Un- The Unforgiven. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And so, uh, but at the same time, you've got stuff like Young Guns. We've got the same thing going on with mobsters right now. I mean, within... Two or three years of each other, you had the uh, uh, Costas Mandalore, um, uh, uh, Christian Slater, I can't remember who else, mobsters, right? And that's mm-hmm. just like sheen and sexy. And, you know, I, mm-hmm. I honestly never saw it because I just couldn't even, you know, fathom the idea. But somewhere within two or three years of that, I think about two or three years before that, actually, you had Goodfellas. Yes. Which is one of the yes. most Love that amazing movie. movies, you know, ever made. So, yeah, yeah. it is, it is kind of weird. I think you're probably right to an extent. I mean, gangsters have probably – you've seen probably like harder treatments of gangsters and then you get sort of the more cuddly around the 50s and 60s. I mean, they were – I was reminded actually of um, Sheldon Leonard's character from uh, from uh, It's a Wonderful Life. You, mm-hmm. when, you know, when we're dealing with the alt universe that George Bailey mm-hmm. goes into. I mean, th- there's that kind of like, you know, like, oh, th- it's that accent. It's that, you know, this guy's not really going to hurt you. He's not. Right. He's not going to be your friend, but he's not going to hurt you. The Goodfellas guys would have just, you know, put a bullet in Kirk's head. Yeah, <laughs> right. Exactly. exactly. But it was. It was a different time. It was a happier time. Yeah. So you have to assume that that big book from 1992, the uh, Chicago Mobs of the 20s, had a, had a heavy influence of Dick Tracy in there. Exactly. <laughs> you know? Like I said yeah. earlier. Exactly. Now, now I do yeah. have to ask: Is 
the big bible book, mm-hmm. something that they made on this planet based on a much smaller, less reverential tome, or did they have the big white, you know, book about the gangsters of the 20s, uh, uh, you know, on right. board the horizon? Because if they did, they had at least two of them, and one imagines they actually had 12 of them because there are 12 different right. bosses. Well, yeah, so here's a, on that episode of Enterprise where yeah. we're on board the horizon, there is that big white book. Seriously? Chicago, yeah. So now you could infer that maybe they were carrying around a case of those just yes. because they, they have to ship those all over the galaxy for some reason. Well, no, uh, that's I, their job. I, I will tell you exactly what happened. Uh-huh. Third in command, vanity pressed that thing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and brought it on board. He's like, "Oh, have you read my book?" Yeah, yeah you yeah. know, actually, I borrowed. Uh, I borrowed Captain uh, Stubings. I don't know who yeah, the right. captain of the Enterprise was, so I'll do the captain of the Love Boat instead. Yeah, I borrowed yeah. Captain Stubings, so I'm really good. No, you hold on to that box. We might, we might come across some people who will find that intensely interesting. Yeah, can, can you just get it to me on Kendall, please? Because <laughs> I don't have room. Because we're on a spaceship, right? I have the we tiny need room for food. I have the tiny little disc of it. Actually, I don't really need. I don't know what you're going to do with thirteen of those. Right. Yeah. Uh, my my guess was that they had one book and then the Iotians were clever enough that they reproduced it multiple times and they passed this thing around because it is their Bible. We're joking know? about that, but I'm honestly reminded of A Canical for Leibowitz. I don't know if you remember. Did you ever read The Canical mm. for Leibowitz? No, no, I don't know this. No. Um, it's been a long time since I've read it and a lot of it unfortunately has escaped me. But uh, we're, we start off and it's, it's post-nuclear war earth we've gone mm-hmm. very much into the dark ages and we're actually now following a group of monks who are doing illuminated manuscripts mm. but they're not doing manuscripts they're doing blueprints and mm. i don't i don't remember now why it was that blueprints were what they did but i mean you have guys who will spend years working on one blueprint that they have found someplace else um so yeah i kind of picture that with the uh, with the uh, gangsters of the 1920s chicago oh. gangsters of the 1920s <laughs> Well, you know, speaking of blueprints, and the, the, this kind of is another thing that I thought of with this episode, um, Admiral Perry, uh, his expedition to Japan in, I think it was 1853. So just in a very, very small nutshell, um, you know, Japan had existed for at least a couple hundred years under this feudal system with the the shogun in charge, Mm -hmm. okay? And then one day you have Admiral Perry show up with his Western ships and his Western crew and um, basically strong-arming them into saying, hey, look, you are going to open up trade with us because your society is the same as it was more than 200 years ago. We have ships, we have guns, we have all this other stuff, and you're going to adopt our governmental system. So then, you know, by the time you get to the end of the 19th century and you get to the Meiji Restoration, suddenly Japan has a very Western uh, uh, look to it, a very Western culture. There are pockets where they've maintained traditions, um, but things change there very, very quickly. And one of the things that I read, this might be apocryphal, but uh, one of the things that I had read is that um, after the ships had arrived and after these uh, trade routes had started to open up, Westerners could actually go into Japanese shops and find things that had been sort of reverse engineered by the Japanese. We're talking about guns, 
we're talking, you know, which did not exist in Japan, at least not in that same form up until this point. So they, they could go in there and find their own stuff that had immediately been adopted and recreated and reproduced by the Japanese. Um, so I kind of thought about this as, as a very interesting parallel to that of taking, just absorbing the technology right away, tearing it apart <laughs> and rebuilding it and really changing the face of the entire culture because of that, oh, how would Spock put it, contamination. See, what I actually find fascinating about that, and I cannot believe this is the first we're talking about it, because you would think, and I will tell you the story of Admiral Perry is not one that I know, so I'm basing this entirely mm -hmm. on what you just told me. Okay, <laughs> all right. Okay. Um, so basically what you're telling me is Admiral Perry shows up in Japan, takes a look around, turns mm -hmm. to the ship's doctor and says, but look, they're not making anything. They're not doing anything. They're not evolving. <laughs> I mean, how, well, how, how, do we, how, do we, how do we really? So we let Kirk go around and keep doing that with, with actually Earth history, Admiral Perry having done that? Well, but here's the thing about Perry. Yeah, I think the more important thing about Perry, uh, besides the fact that the, the Japanese, like I said, uh, absorbed and then recreated all of this stuff that then was handed to them by the Westerners. Um, the other kind of really interesting thing there is that, you know, Perry went in for trade and basically intimidated the, the Japanese to say, well, look, the entire Western world is going to show up one day on your doorstep. So you better be ready for this. And they said, well, we don't really have a choice. So they did that. Now, <laughs> I'm good, sorry. good point. Yeah. I'm still stuck on one thing, though. So yeah. so he does that in like 1850. Yeah. In 1941, the Japanese bomb Pearl Harbor and are trying to take over, you know, the half of the world that's not being overrun by the Nazis, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, so we actually now have to start worrying about the feeders of Vol. <laughs> Yes, yes. Because <laughs> one day, yeah. you know, having, you know, torn asunder the way they did things and telling them, ah, no, we do this, we do that, we call it freedom, and you're going to love it. And like 100 years from now, <laughs> hey, who are, the, who are those guys? And and what are they doing? Yeah. Messing up my sunny day. Watch out. <laughs> and my, you know, and my way of life and planet for, you know, right. a few years at least. Yeah. Um, I do have a question, though, about sort of how we deal with the Iotians. Mm -hmm. Um. Uh, it's tough to say that there's damage done by the horizon because we don't know what the oceans were like before, but we're going to assume that there was damage done. Contamination, right. as Spock right. says it. Um, Kirk justifies his almost pathological need to meddle in yeah. any society they come across by saying, well, the Federation broke it. It is our duty to fix it. Yeah, yeah. Um, Spock is still working to do this without blatant force or interference. But, I mean, but they're trying to fix interference that's already been done. And what's really weird to me is I don't know if he heard about it just since Spock, Bones, and Kirk landed on the planet or if it was something that was kind of being worked on when the Horizon was there, but it wasn't completely, you know, done when the Horizon was there. Even Krakow has heard of the Federation rules of non-interference. Mm -hmm. Now, how that word got around um, is 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 kind of beyond me at the point that it comes in this episode. There are a few places that it took me. Um, once they decided, so how are we going to fix it? Well, we're going to fix it by leaving the guys here in charge. <laughs> yeah, right. right. Sort, of like, sort of like turning the thralls over to the gamesters of Triskelion and saying, yeah. hey, now, you guys be good. Okay. <laughs> this place needs a boss is what they say. So tell you what, big boss, who has not been able to maintain order to this point. <laughs> right. 
You be the boss. Now, second big boss, stick with me. You're going to be the second boss, okay? And I'm sure everything is going to be fine this time. I mean, mm-hmm. it, it, just, it strikes me as kind of crazy. I mean, it, it, the fact that Spock calls him out on it at the end um, kind of made me happy. But then we get the little do-do-do-do-do-do, you know, kind of, kind of <laughs> your clarinet thing that basically is like the audio cue. That piece of music should be called Here We Go Again. Yeah, Because right. that's pretty much just what it is, right? Spock's like, hey, are, are we sure we did the right thing? Boom. You know? Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, fine. There was one other thing that I've been wondering about lately, and I'm I'm going to... Well, anger people, I feel certain. I've been wondering okay. lately um, what it is about the Prime Directive that I find personally so appealing. And hmm. I have to say, I don't think that it is actually the principle of non-interference that does it for me. I think what it really appeals to me about the Prime Directive, about the principle of non-interference, is that it's a code by which they live. and hmm. And ideally, they live by it when it's easy to do. Um... You know, and we all live by things when they're easy to do, and they live right. by it when it's difficult, you know, unless they happen to be Jim Kirk, in which case they live by it when they feel like it. Sure. Right. Um, there's, a, there's a series of novels by a, a, a novelist called, um, it's either Ian or Ian uh, M. Banks, and they're called culture novels, and they're all really interesting novels, and, 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 and life has evolved just a tremendous amount to the point that... We can actually now bring other people up if, if, if they want to. We could land on a medieval planet and raise them to, within a generation, raise them into people who can actually change, change their bodies and change their metabolism and, and fly starships and understand things. And, and they're like living machines now that wander around. And they're not like, they're not our robot servants. They are, they're, they're manufactured intelligence, kind of like we've talked about off and on mm-hmm. throughout this series of, uh, mm-hmm. of, of podcasts that we've been doing. And I wonder, like, are we being a little sort of too standoffish to say, oh, no, 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 let's not, let's let's let them do it on their own. Do you know what I well, mean? Because what happens yeah. in the culture novels and the culture novels, they'll come across a society and they'll say, so here's what we have to offer. Do you want it? Do you not? And if the society says, yeah, we want that. Great. They start this process where they bring them into the culture and then they're sort of. Their, you know, uh, uniqueness is, is, is folded into, uh, you know, what goes on in the culture. Uh-huh. And if they a say that, Borg. Yeah. Exa- well, kind of, except, <laughs> except you know, they, everybody still has, you know, what they came with. And then if, if the cultures, if, if the, you know, the civilization they come across is, no, 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 we don't want that. Uh, then they're like, okay, well, fine. Have fun. We're, we're going to be out here. And if you change yeah. your mind, you know, let us know because we'd love to have you. And if you don't want to, that's fine, too. And then you'll get like something where maybe a few members of the society will go ahead and join that. It's, I mean, it's just it's weird. I don't, I, I've sort of always clung to the idea of, oh, I love the Prime Directive. But, you know, I mean, if we see a war going on someplace, is it our duty to stop it? Or if we see a famine going on someplace, is it our mm. duty to stop it? If we could, you know not to be all, you know, Christian children's fun, but for the price of a cup of coffee, mm-hmm. if we can actually, you know, keep people from dying, do we do that? Should we do that? Or do we go, wow, that's really too bad. I wish there was something I could do, but I'm sort of, yeah, I got this thing where I don't do anything. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and just specifically in the case of a piece of the action, they they left the planet with a bunch of criminals in charge. You know, all they know, right now is their criminal lives and 
you you have to wonder what tools they left with them. You know, only in, in just a few instances in Star Trek have we seen them leave a place or or leave a culture with some help to get them beyond where they are. So even and I think you're making a very good case here for justifying when we interfere and and when we are morally obligated to do so. Um, certainly in the case where uh, people are, are dying or being exploited or, or something like that. Um, but it, it seems like, and it could just be the limitations of TV or a TV episode and maybe not wanting to get too preachy by the end of it, but it seems like at the end, particularly with something like this, you have to say, well, okay, the Federation is going to leave behind this other thing to help you. We, we have a sociologist on board. We've got, we have social engineers on board. We have all these other tools that will help you to get out of this. And then like you're saying, you also have to assume that there is a level of consent built into that, where you say to these people, is this okay with you? This is what we have to offer. But if you don't want it, we'll back off. It's a tough thing. You know, then you get into a whole other argument or conversation about, well, just by uh, by fact of being observed, you are then changing those who are being observed. You are changing the conditions of what you're observing by being there and observing them. Yes. You know? Yeah. Well, and maybe it's sort of a moot point because obviously the prime directive is the prime directive and the culture novels are something else different. If you want to see yeah. you know, like a, a different way that that's addressed – and as far as I know, there's not even a culture novel that really, you know, that's about that. It's just sort of like you read two or three of these novels and you kind of pick up, oh, well, that's that's the way that goes. It's kind of an interesting. Yeah. It's it's not Star Trek-y at all, except that, you know, we, we come across other societies. And rather than saying, man, I hope they learn to fly, we right. say, hey, you guys want to go see something really cool? No? Right, all right. Right, right. Oh, you do? Ah, come here. I want to show you yeah. this. Well, and there's another, you know, depending on how far you want to take this, um, there is something about the prime directive. You know, again, we're talking about the difference in pre-warp and post-warp societies. Mm -hmm. So the prime directive is saying, well, you know, if they don't understand spacefaring, if they don't have warp technology, we're not going to go there. Now, the horizon screwed that up in this episode, but that was before that rule was in place. Right. Okay, fine. Um, but then by doing that, you do have to ask sort of bigger questions about how much of a culture are you influencing? How much of their original culture are you leaving intact? Um, the world that we're presented with in Star Trek, when you look at the Federation as a whole, well, okay, you have all these different cultures. You, you've got humans, you have Andorians, you have Klingons, they all have very uh, – Vulcans, they all have very well-defined senses of identity and senses of culture, but they also have these things that they share, you know, at least enough common interest and uh, particularly in the case of Star Trek, common technology that can bring them together. Um, You have to wonder, depending on how much of this mental exercise you want to do, how much of that is achievable. You know, we that, that's why I brought up the Japanese and, and Admiral Perry. Well, once you start to disseminate your culture and your technology, how much of that original culture is still left? You know, well, it may have to do with how far your culture advances, too. I mean, if we're going to if we're going to mm-hmm. keep playing this game that we're playing, I mean, at some point, one would hope. 
Uh, the comedian Bill Hicks used to talk about it all the time. He wanted people to stop fighting so that we could hurry up, get smarter, and get off this rock. I mm-hmm. mean, his idea mm-hmm. was, you know, a, in a very funny way, and then mm-hmm. sadly a, a way that was taken away from us far too early. Um, mm-hmm. His idea was, you know, if we can stop, you know, hitting each other, then we could actually go out and do good things, like go, you know, get off this rock. We could go do, you know, other stuff. Um, yeah. So, I mean, when you talk about things like, you know, the uh, Andorians and the and the and the, even the Klingons and the Vulcans and the humans, I mean, we we our society theoretically has evolved enough that we're like, all right, let's see what else. I think this is really, really big picture stuff. This helps to define what the Federation is and how it operates and and how much how much culture and technology sort of coincide but also conflict, you know. Um, the, the final kind of big note that I took on this episode um, was I thought that it was a very interesting and you might even say kind of ham-fisted look at zealotry and the, the religious zealotry with which the book is held. You know, the the book, in this case, the, the gangster book, is the be-all and end-all for the Ioceans. And they cannot even entertain the idea of any other form of life than what is given to them in the book. Um, so th- there is a statement here about um, maybe having cultural or philosophical blinders on uh, when it comes to the way you look at the world. It is interesting to me that Kirk uses their own, you know, it, it takes him a little while, but he finally gets to that point where he, he, he learns to use their own culture and their own point of view to turn that back around on them. Um, and you just kind of have to cross your fingers and hope for the best the next time a Federation ship lands there. Bella Oxnix would be the first to tell you, if you want something in this world, you gotta take it. So, what did the Mission Log crew take from this week's show? Time for that part of the show where we say, time for that part of the show where we say, uh, what are the messages, morals, and meanings of this episode, and does the episode stand the test of time? Um, I want to do the, does the episode stand the test of time part first? Um, sure. Yeah, you can tell, or it would seem that the memo that you mentioned a few shows back, where where people said they liked the interplay between Spock and McCoy, that's been taken very much to heart in this episode. We talked about sort of the comedy parts between um, between uh, uh, Kirk and Spock, but there's a, there's a decent amount of that between uh, Spock and McCoy as well. Not quite as funny as the you know thing we talked about a few weeks ago. I need your advice. Well, then I need a drink. <laughs> Not quite that, but there's a bit more interplay here. Um, there's a lot of fun had in this episode. It, it's fun to see Nimoy play Spock as a bit less stoic than we normally do. I don't know that he'd actually have been as disrespectful to Kirk as he was at times, but it is fun to see Nimoy have fun, even if Spock is not having fun. Yeah. Uh, you talked about the fact that they used the 12-year-old kid as a diversion. The 12-year-old kid so worked for me and he's on screen for maybe a minute and a half except for the part <laughs> except for the actual diversion when right. he actually goes and yeah, daddy daddy that whole thing yeah um that did not work but his conversation with kirk yeah and 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 more to the point shatner getting to play off a kid yeah was great i mean that that worked out pretty well now i will say the next time you see shatner any place at a convention or you know just walking down the street maybe in an interview see if he's still got any of bella oxmith's um oxmith's uh, couch cushions in the corner of his mouth because oh my god was he chewing the scenery <laughs> i mean it, it, this was i yeah. mean it, and it was yeah. and it and it got i don't want to say 
I don't want to say worse. I will say progressive. It, it progressed throughout the episode. It starts off and he's, you know, he's Captain Kirk. And then, hey, he's a little bit of Captain Kirk. And by the end of it, I don't even know what accent he was doing. Right. right. I mean, right. it just gets so big and so huge. And, you know, and yet, I don't know. It's, it, it didn't bother me. Well, it's one of those moments you have to ask yourself, this is an actor decision or a director decision, because in the reality of producing it, he could have just pulled this out from one of the many, many takes. And the director said, oh, that's really funny. Mm-hmm. Keep keep doing that. You know, and it's not even thinking about the big picture of we're overplaying it or, or whatever. It just kind of worked for that moment. And then, you know, sort of the positive reinforcement of, hey, look, what I'm doing is funny and people are really responding to it. So you keep pushing the envelope a bit <laughs> like a you three-year-old know? at a birthday party <laughs> right? <laughs> or at a cocktail party <laughs> well, hey why not i i will say that to me um very much like gamesters of triskelion which we did last week i kept thinking this episode should be terrible it should be an awful episode and it has no right to be as good as it is because when you talk about star trek to people it's kind of like a piece of the action is one of those shorthand uh, episodes. You're like, oh, yeah, remember when we went to the gangster planet? <laughs> um, but you go back and watch it, and, yeah, it's a cheesy premise, and it is totally played for camp. But despite itself, it really works. Um, I, I don't think it works as well as Gamesters does because you and I both really responded to that that dark undercurrent mm-hmm. that Gamesters had. But this one does work, um, even with all the comedy. There is that bit that they're all in on the joke. Everybody here is in on it. And that is a very tricky thing to pull off for any show without turning into Batman or turning into the third season of The Man from Uncle, where this is very conscious, like, hey, we're doing a comedy show now. Yeah. This, you know, maybe it's because the characters are well defined and we, we love them already. Um, and we're looking for those little hints of the things about the characters that we like. Mm-hmm. Um, but somehow I swallowed this premise whole <laughs> and and I went with it. Well, you I, know? I can tell you one of the reasons I think you might have is because it was fluffy, which may sound mm-hmm. which may sound crazy. But people chastised. I don't remember if it was us or me. All of the above. OK, for, yeah. for not having fun with I mud. Mm-hmm. Uh, or just having fun with iMud. Yeah. And the reason it was difficult to do that with iMud is because it felt to me like there were actually real issues and bigger issues that were brought up in iMud. Um, at least they were to me. Mm-hmm. And and additionally, iMud was a waste of a really great character in Harry Mud. Yeah. Now, this episode was much easier to just let go and have fun because there's not a lot of there there. In this episode. I mean, there are things you can fault, like why is a starship flying around with 12 copies of a 100-year-old book about, you know, gangsters from Chicago and not, say, a 400-year-old book about Sherwood Forest or a 150-year-old book about the Jazz Age or something like Mm -hmm. that, right? Mm -hmm. A whole library filled with all sorts of fanciful titles. And then you might end up with something like, you know, a planet that's like Westworld or Future World, you know. Oh, yeah. But who cares because that's not what happened. (laughs) I mean, this show is what it is. And because... I mean, there's there's really not a lot. I mean, unless, I mean, the 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 blind adherence to the text, to mm-hmm. a religious extent, I guess, is actually something you could pick up. And I'm sort of ashamed that I missed it. But even then, we're not preaching that. I mean, th- mm-hmm. I mean, it's not. 
and and you can tell we're not breaching it because they let him go ahead and do it. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're, mm-hmm. they're, they're not faulted for for believing blindly in this book at the end. It's just they've been believing blindly in this book wrong. Oh, you know what's not going to work is Protestants and Catholics and 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 Lutherans and Episcopalians. I tell you what. Let's be Catholic. You be Pope. You be under Pope. I mean, that's pretty much what they did, right? I mean, they, well, they pretty much set up like like a Pope and a cart and a, and a, and a college of bishops. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And and said this is how this is going to work from now on, and we're going to leave, and we're going to come back, and hopefully you guys aren't doing drive bys when we return. Well, but but I have to hope. I mean, this is sort of an interesting thing is to say that yeah, they they left the structure in place, um, but it, it was that blind adherence to the book. That is the problem. I, I hope that the point of view, at least, of the Federation, wherever it comes back, wherever is helping the IOTIANS to go beyond that, um, are, are going towards something that would allow the IOTIANS to think for themselves and not merely imitate what they are handed. It's sort of this idea of, I don't want to teach you what to think. I want to teach you how to think. And, and I hope that's the point of view here. If you were to extrapolate the next episode, the next time we come back to the Ioceans, I know I mentioned what happens in the comic book, which is a lot of fun, but the comic book assumes that the Ioceans stay true to nature and they only imitate what they are handed. Um, You know, Rod and I kind of had this conversation and he left us a note about um, how they could have made a stronger statement about how absurd it is for a society to unquestionably follow a book and whether or not you're going to make this into a a religious story. Um, And they sort of threw it out there, but that wasn't truly what the episode was about. Uh, So I think it's interesting that we get to have that conversation and say, well, you, you know, maybe if we were to put on our producer hats and come up with what the next episode would be to follow the Ioceans, well, maybe, maybe they've uh, been taught a little something about the methodology of thinking for themselves and not just copying what they're handed. Because God knows there's a lot of books out there. <laughs> and they might get another <laughs> very bad book yeah. to base a society on. I keep trying to think of what's like a terrible book that they could have done that with. but um... Just all the Jacqueline Suzanne novels. They're just going to get all of that. And it'll just be ramp. It'll just be a mess. They never get anything done. You see, here's <laughs> the problem. I, I feel fairly certain you've offended somebody, but you know. <laughs> okay, I take that back. I don't. Yeah. I don't know who though, so I guess we're okay. And, right. and because here's the other thing. I mean, we aren't trying to tell you what to think or or how to think. Um, I will say though, we would love to hear what you do think. So mm-hmm. if you'd like to get in touch with us, uh, there are certainly a few ways to do that: Facebook, Skype, Twitter. The handle is Mission Log Pod. If you do one of those things, you can also just pick up the phone and call us, or pick up a phone and call us, since there tends to be more than one. 323-522-5641 is the number to call. 323-522-5641. You can email us, missionlog at roddenberry.com. That email address again is missionlog at roddenberry.com. And don't forget to check out our very nice home on the internet, missionlogpodcast.com. Remember, we may use your comments on an upcoming episode of Mission Log. Well, it's been a pleasure as always, Ken. And next week, make sure you tune in for The Immunity Syndrome.
some of the music for the mission log provided by Warp 11, online at warp11.com, and from the album Messages, by Key Theory, free to download at kitheory.com. It's like the tough guys of old would say, if they bring a shuttle, you bring a starship. If they bring a Tommy gun, you bring a phaser. Here, endeth the transmission. Now leaving Nerdist.com.